new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Great to be here. And again, thank you to all who are listening. Uh, thank you to those who are also contributing to the podcast. We appreciate that. Thank you to our listeners worldwide uh, in the United States, Canada, and across the globe. Really appreciate you tuning in to the show. So on today's podcast, we have with us Jill Campbell, and she began her career running lines with Morgan Freeman at the Public Theater. Since 2005, Jill has worked as a producer, director, and writer on films that have had worldwide distribution and screened on Netflix, Amazon, Canopy, BBC, Urban Movie Channel, and Sky TV. Jill directed the award-winning documentary, Mr. Chibs, about NBA All-Star Kenny Anderson. Jill also directed, produced, and edited the documentary, The Hamlet of Canfield Gardens, about her mentor, British playwright Bernard Copps. As a writer, Jill participated in CBS's Writer's Daytime Development Lab, and her plays have been produced at La Mama Chemistry of Love, Mabu Mines, and Dublin Fringe Festival. Jill's film, Pink Waves, was selected for Doc New York's Only in New York and Pitch Select. Other films Jill's produced include Anne Bass's Dancing Across Borders, Out of Print, and Kevin Bright and Jeff Consiglio's Doc Severinsen documentary never too late jill's newest film released in 2020 seat 20d premiered at hampton's doc fest and canada's prestigious art fifa uh, which is the international festival of films on art this documentary explores the grief journey of those after the bombing of pan am flight 101 in 1988 with a focus on susa lowenstein and her monumental sculpture she titled dark elegy Welcome, Jill, to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's amazing you hear someone's bio, and you know you have so much more. I know you could add to that bio, but it's it's so long, and it's such an amazing career you've had. And I'm really curious, how did you get started uh, in this field, anyways? Oh, thank you. I mean, my career as a documentarian. I really thank you for for honoring my career and credits. I mean. I feel like I'm always looking for my next gig. So I I never feel like it's that illustrious in my mind, but I know that I've worked really hard and I'm very de- dedicated and passionate about um, my career as a storyteller. So how did I get this get to this place was I started, I got a BFA from Ithaca College in theater and moved to New York to become an actress in the late 80s. And then I really quickly decided... I did not like the acting side of the business. It was before me too, a lot of weird stuff going on in the 80s in New York City. And I decided I wanted to go into the producing side. And that's when I got hired as a production assistant at Shakespeare in the Park. And um, they were doing a show called Taming of the Shrew with and Morgan Freeman and Tracy Ellman and Helen Hunt were starring in it. So that was really cool because I got to... Um, practice lines with Morgan Freeman. He was an absolute amazing gentleman. And I took Tracy Ullman on her first New York City subway ride. And it was it was super cool. So that got me into kind of the behind the scenes producing aspect of the entertainment business. And then I decided I always wanted to write and write plays. And my husband got transferred to London and I decided to really go for playwriting there. And that's where I took all these classes, studied with Bernard Copps, and wrote my first play, came back to New York, 
determined to become a playwright, got a job, my day job with a well-known artist named Julian Lethbridge. He's an abstract expressionist who's actually business partners with Jasper Johns. And his, um, Julian's partner was Ann Bass. And she decided to make a documentary about this Cambodian ballet dancer that she was sponsoring from Cambodia. It's called Dancing Cross Borders. It's an amazing film. And they brought me on and that project took six years. And that was my first documentary that I worked on. I was an associate producer. And from there, I was completely hooked because I, I used my craft and learning how to tell stories through like my studies as a playwright and a writer and and put them into documentaries. So then from that film I kept getting hired on other films. It was awesome. That film had like major distribution, was out everywhere and I got hired on a lot of films and then I decided I really wanted to learn like the technical aspects, get a more formal education. So I went back to school and got my master's and MFA in documentary. And along the way, I continued to create documentaries, getting hired and just working on my craft and trying to make better and better work. Wow. So interesting. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine just trying to figure out the ropes to get to where you were, I guess, maybe envisioning yourself. Because it seems like like, you first wanted to be an, an actress and then all of a sudden, like, once you learn more, everything shifted. And it's like, how do you continue to shift with your new understanding? And that's where I know a lot of people are, are looking for in life is trying to understand and, and find their, I guess, their purpose or, or what they love or where they fit in the most. And it seems like with your journey, it's like you always get found a new direction and then opportunities came. And to work on a project for six years, that's like a PhD and a master's. <laughs> and I'm, sure. Right? Like, and that's your first project. And then all of a sudden, like it was a hit. Everyone sort of, then you really got those job opportunities to hone your skills. I love hearing those stories because it reminds you of how much work it takes to get to where you are. And I know a lot of people are, you know, they may not have the effort um, or they just they don't have the wisdom to under- understand how long it does take to hone your craft. It really does. That 10,000 hour thing, Malcolm Gladwell, I I really believe in. And I think that like, yeah, it was honing my craft. I mean, I say my first film that took six years was like, I got paid to go to film school. It was awesome because Ann Bass was a socialite. She had a lot of funds for the film. But um, I think like what I, when I decided to really dedicate myself to documentary was you know, I had this amazing play produced at La Mama in New York City. It's like this very famous off-off-Broadway playhouse, and it got amazing reviews, and I loved it, and and I put so much work into it. And then after that, like, I, I just got no opportunities from that, and I never made a dime in theater, but I on my day job became, like, working in as a producer or a consultant in documentaries. I'm like, oh, I'm making money in documentary, but I'm making nothing in theater. What am I doing? Maybe maybe I need to shift and just go for the documentary filmmaking world. And it's really hard to make a living in filmmaking as well. So I was really lucky that I made, you know, that I made money at my craft. I mean, not tons, but I made a living. So that's how I shifted. <laughs> Well, sometimes you got to take those risks, right? Like, and as you're saying, like, 
where where you want to go wasn't paying the bills. And so you start following where the money is or where the attention is pulling you. And it's amazing what you can find. And so, you know, good for you following your heart and, and taking the risk because you're doing a lot. And I, I personally love documentaries. And if I do watch a movie that's, you know, kind of like a documentary, <laughs> it's based on <laughs> loosely based on the real events of something. I enjoy those movies too, because it, it opens my eyes on like a journey that people have had. And that's why I love the podcast so much too, is we get a window in someone's life and the journey they've been through to be where they are. And a lot of it has to do with their, their grief process and how that's changed them. So when it comes to documentaries for yourself, what really pulls you there over making other films? Um, to documentaries or to the story? Well, I mean, to documentaries, what pulls me there is, I think, coming from a theater background where the performances are live and in documentary, I like to shoot in verite or observational you know, manner. So you're shooting a live kind of performance. So I, and you know, documentary is all about story, but it's about, you know, it's real. So where theater is like a story you've, created you know that's that you've manufactured documentaries are like real life but you still have to have story structure and i mean there's a lot of like argument on like even if they they're portrayed to be real they're still like an artist putting their stamp on the documentary so it's not you know a news story or journalism it's like what's the difference between docs and a news story so i think that i love that challenge like i could bring my theatrical background into it my my knowledge of story and my knowledge of like when a moment really works when you're getting like that pure moment of authenticity when you're filming a documentary with your subject which i feel like you know that's what i aspire to and that's what i feel like i've I've reached with, you know, Kenny Anderson and Mr. Chibs and Susa Lowenstein and C20B. Yeah, that's, uh, it's super interesting uh, coming from that angle that what well, lens, if you will, that you have, because you're a documentary, they're not acting. So you're, when there is magic, it's like, I would imagine it's more satisfying because you're like, wow, this is perfect. You know, because if you were to act it, it could still be good, but you know, they're, amateurs essentially you know they're not really actors so they're any type of magical moment must seem like even more special so true and what's harder in documentary is you're getting this moment and i'm filming a new one now so i'm going through this and like not only do you like you know you're in this special moment like a character is like it's just you you know it's that magic moment and then you're like okay is the camera at the right angle yeah. is the yeah. audio working how's the lighting um does my cameraman have the camera pointed to where i want it to be how do i get all this and not like disturb the reality that's happening in front of me and i think like first what you do is you you for me, I have to become invisible. Like I want them to forget I'm there and just try to, you know, just try to go about their own lives. Or, I mean, if it's an, if you're interviewing someone, it's different, but even in an interview, you want like that. I don't like just sit down staring at the camera interviews. I just want to get them like in a net, like doing something or right. doing, being very natural. So yeah. So that's why I went to film school. <laughs> 
because I wanted to learn all that and get better at it. Yeah, well, obviously, any of you succeeded at that. That's that's so cool to even hear and understand. Like being someone who's, especially when it comes down to documentaries, there's a lot of you know you're telling stories, and with stories there are emotions uh, on on a wide range of types of emotions. And what you have to do is essentially, you know, prompt this person to kind of go into this. Okay, I need you to wash dishes and tell me about that time when you, you know you fell off your your bike and, and broke your arm. And then how do I get this person as they're doing this to give me what I need without being too involved? Like it's like an animal documentary, like you're watching an animal, but you don't want to be in it. Very true. It's it's an art, and it's a uh, you get better at it. The, the long, you know, every it's, you know, it's like a sport, like the longer you play, I I just, you know, I always think it's like tennis. It's like, you're always trying to get that perfect shot, yeah. you know, and sometimes you do and it's amazing and it's the money shot. And then sometimes like it's medium there and sometimes you just screwed it up. And um, like the more I do, I get better at it. Yeah. So I feel like I'm in a really good place right now. When you uh, when you have to go back and look at the footage and look at the uh, I guess the raw material, what prompts you? What's your decision making with what what stays in, what goes out? Is that an intuitive thing, or is that is that something that you just honed as you kind of came along? That's a great question. So what I've learned from my process is first I really have to find the story and you know, you know what this kind of what the story is, like you find an interesting subject and you know, they're going to be interesting and, and you want it to be compelling. And, and, um, but you, with documentary, it takes a while to find the story. Like you don't really find the story until the edit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I kind of know what the story, the story starts to, to kind of simmer in my mind as I'm, as I'm shooting and, you know, you go back and back, you know, each documentary I've made, I've shot like over the course of at least two to three years and you go back and you get more and, and on your way, you're like the story's forming. So you kind of like ask questions about that fit the story and you, you know, you kind of mold it around the story and yeah. And that's, that's just how you work it. So then in the edit, what I do is I just get the story down first, even if I have like crappy footage, like I didn't get the shot I want to fit that story. Right. Story is everything. Like if you don't have a story, you're going to bore your audience. Nobody's going to care. Even if it's an abstract piece, there has to be like this strong through, through line that propels the, the, the movie forward. So you don't lose viewers. So then it's like, then you fill in the blanks. Then you're like, I mean, you have shots that, you know, like sometimes like the shot in C20D of the mother teaching her son to surf that we just happened upon because we went to the beach where Alex, you know, used to surf. Susa told us about that beach and me and my cameraman, Dayan Pavlovic, just went there one day and just shot all day. And then he, I actually walked off that he, this is what's great about being in tandem with your camera guy. Like I had to go take a phone call, but I trust him. And I also like to like not be on my camera guys back all the time and let him create and let him have his moments. And he found that shot. And I'm like, that's the opening of the film. Like that's wow. such a metaphor for the whole film. And we just happened upon it. 
<laughs> That's so cool to hear. And just one last question about all this. Sure. I'm so interested. But um, what's it like <laughs> when you? <laughs> what's I'm so interested. What's it like when you have your? You've got the story. You've got the footage that goes along with it, and then maybe in post production you listen to the music that goes along with it. What's that moment like? Um, so with the music, like first you like don't want to pay for the music up front. So first we just found <laughs> temp music. You know, you just pull whatever music off you know, that you find that kind of gets you vibing with it. Mm -hmm. And of course, like most filmmakers fall in love with their temp music and like, cause you edit the film sure. music and then you don't want to like use anything else. So I, I fell in love with my temp music and I reached out to the musicians. There were all these like indie musicians and nobody got back to me. And then, so I just decided to hire a composer and at first when he played me the songs, I was not into them because they weren't like I had to like slowly kind of readjust. And then mm -hmm. and I had Jeffrey Burke, who's amazing. And then like, yeah, then he we worked together. Like I told him what I was feeling. He listened to the temp music Then I also wanted him to have the freedom to also vibe on the film. So it's, it's such a collaboration such a collaboration and then with mr chibs i worked with jeff parker who's this really well-known musician um and oh god he was awesome his music in that film is just incredible and jeffrey works is awesome too so yeah no you're, you're right sean this is super interesting because it's not <laughs> like every day you meet a producer or someone that films documentaries, right? But I'm guessing you have a lot of friends who <laughs> are in this world. It's like I have a lot of friends that are researchers, right? Just like right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's funny. Um, so I actually want to go to your newest film now that True. you made, C20D, and really understand, as you said, like you walk around always with a, an idea of what's my next film going to be, what's my next documentary going to be. And so how did this come about in your mindset? Because it was from 1988, right? Like that's when the, the group yeah. started for these people. And it's been, I don't want to do my math, but it's been, it's been a long time. 32 <laughs> so, years, I think. 32 years. Okay. All right. 30, <laughs> sorry. Um, so we were in Montauk. I go there, Montauk, New York. Like it's a beach town. Go on like a summer holiday there. And my husband and I were there. My husband's like my partner in filmmaking and, he saw this little blurb in, in this newspaper, um, like the little local, like I think it's called the Montauk Sun, that described dark elegy, like this memorial sculpture garden. We had no idea what it was. It's open from 10 to 12 in the backyard of, of a home in Montauk. We thought, and it was a rainy day. And we're like, this is kind of cool. Let's just go check this out. You know, we have nothing else to do. It's raining at the beach. So, you know, we go and it's like you drive in and it's this beautiful property in Montauk and there's a sign on a gate that says dark allergy and you go in the back and you walk in and you see this garden of, I think it's 75 life-size women dropped into the position they, they fell into when they heard about the death of their loved ones on Pan Am flight 103, when it exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. And it's incredible because they're like, they're naked, they're raw, they're all in different 
positions and the sculpture is just beautiful. And also Susan's property, like she sculptures all over, not just dark elegy. It's like this magical garden. So we, so for me, I actually went to school in Ithaca, at Ithaca College and studied in London two years before Alex was in London. Ithaca and Syracuse University, where Alex went, Alex's Sousa's son, who was killed on the crash, are like you know sister colleges. Like we took classes together. I knew a lot of those kids. So basically, what happened was like thirty-five Syracuse University students were murdered on Pan Am Flight 103 when it was bombed over Lockerbie, Scotland. So they lost 35 students that were coming home from a semester abroad in London on that flight. So when I saw the sculpture garden, like that bombing hit me really hard because I was in London two years before. It could have been me. It could have been anyone. I was a college student. You know, I was just, I think, two years out of college. Like I was like immersed in that. And and I, it was like one of those episodes that like, I, I thought of that every time I was on a plane. I just thought of that horror, like it hit me. So when I saw the sculpture garden, I was just first, just as an artist, as a mother, as like, I'd never seen anything like that. And so, you know, and my husband too, he's just loved it. So then we went, um, we went back to our hotel and we just, kept thinking about it all weekend. And I was like, it's such a good documentary idea. Like I want to know more. So like a week or two later, I just found Seuss's info and I called her and reached out to her and said that, you know, I was interested in maybe doing this as a documentary, which is crazy because you're just calling someone cold. And I sent her like my other films and, and different videos and my bio and told her about myself. And she, she was actually dealing with her, her husband was very sick at the time and she was super weary of the press. Like she was kind of sick of talking about it. And also it's just always raw. Like you lose a child, especially like that. It's like, it's always, you're always wearing it on your sleeve. So it was like, I was just trying to be really, it's really hard to, you know, I was trying to be very respectful. Like even now with this film, it's just really hard. Cause I don't like when I do publicity for it, like, I don't want to take advantage of any, anything or anyone, you know, I'm, it's a, you know, I respect the situation much more than getting PR for my film. So, so she, so we, we agreed to do like a phone kind of interview um, just to kind of talk and we got along really well. And then, then we decided to go out. She allowed us to go out and start filming and, and interview her and like, you know, and she liked us and we we got there. It was incredible. And then we kept asking her to come back and we went back You know, They told us about this, like um, this event on nine 11, where they were having a, this local cellist, this amazing cellist named Jean Fox, who played a concert in the middle of the sculptures on nine 11. So we went and filmed that two years in a row and kind of that's how it came about. And it's it's really a story in like us getting to know each other, Susa trusting me with the story of her son, you know, and of her, her of Dark Elegy, which is her, you know, third child, you know. So yeah. Wow, but I think you're you're right because you know, there's so much that that would have 
brought to SUSE with the, the media and the press, it would have been a lot to handle. And we were talking to people on the podcast this before, like after murders and stuff, and this being a terrorist attack, it, it brings even more national attention. Everyone wants you to be on their, their program. Everyone wants a quote. And not many people, I would think, care about you, what your grief is more than they want a story for their end because their boss wants something. Yeah. And so people can really feel isolated or used within their grief. And that's the worst that you don't see me as a human. You don't see me as that person, you know, wailing and crying. You see dollars or, or something else. Right. And so I'm really amazed at your ability to develop that bond, but to also even with PR for this to not try like you understand like you really understand the significance of grief to be able to walk that line where it's a project, but you care so much about those you're filming and, and those that you're trying to get other people in the world to notice. So it's not about you. It's about them. And you had to find the story in a little paper in a local thing, right? Like, but what a big story it is, especially now with everyone who's grieving from like different ways that people are dying in the, in the pandemic like there's so many people going through grief for the first time and so many people, you know, trying to figure it out. And I think this film, what it it's, I think it's a perfect time for it to come out to allow people to normalize the experience and to understand the grief journey and different ways that you can cope, right? Like she was coping with the sculptures and art. And we had someone on the podcast that did that in her own unique way, doing paintings and doing different things with the ashes. And it's just fascinating to me how people find a way through the tragedy and what they use to cope. And so I'm really curious for you, when you started filming, I know you talked to other family members and stuff. What was your reaction when you heard some of these stories in your own uh, personal life? Well, first, I just want to touch on, like, I agree with everything you said. And you're really like, that's what the film's about. Like, it's hard because I want people to see the film because I, I did the film because... I feel like Sousa's story and all the other mothers, like this will help anyone who's going through grief, like just looking at them 32 years on where they could smile, they could talk, you know, it's raw that you're never over it, but they can teach others how they walk through that, you know, walk, got through the journey. And sorry, what was the question? It was, what was my, how did I deal with it or how I... Yeah, your reaction when you when you start hearing about their uh, journey through grief. Yeah. It was, you know, first I'm a mother and my son is 25, but he was like 22 when we were filming this. And so like that kills you. Like I'm talking to people who, you know, that's the worst thing I could ever. And from the moment I you become a mother, like that's your biggest, biggest fear. And even though these women were, you know, 30 years on from the tragedy, it was really still so on the surface. And I, it, it's the hardest project I ever did. And talking to these women who were so generous and so beautiful, I mean, it was gorgeous. It, it, it was, I cried. I cried in the edit room. Like I literally would, it would, I, I would cry, you know, when I, I edited, when I worked on this film. But at, at the same time, it's like, it, you know, death is life. Death is part of life. Like, we're all going to experience it. And I'm so curious about it. And I'm so curious about, like, how do you deal with that kind of grief? And 
I learned so much from them. You know, they taught me. What struck me with the images of the statues was that this is an act. This is like a beautiful ceremony of wailing, of lamenting, of keening. It goes back to, you know, ancient times. It goes back to human history where people, men and women, have gotten together. And when there's a death like that, you know, they wail and they lament and they they show that in a visceral way. And I think it also, it harkens when people do that, it makes me feel like it's also almost inviting people to come take part in that as well. Like in itself, it's it's a piece. And what you've done, and sometimes I could see how maybe uh, Susa might have felt slighted if, you know, you're doing media and if people just want sound bites or you're doing a newspaper article because that doesn't do it justice. But what you've done is you've given it, you've honored it by giving it the time that it needs, the room to breathe and to actually look at it, visually hear it, see it, and and to really, you know, the audience then has the opportunity to take part in that. And that you did the same thing because you, as you're making this movie, it's it's triggering things in you it's making you cry it's it's providing something a connection to that act which in her art which she's displaying for herself and, and the other women uh so i i think that's it's a beautiful it's it's amazing and that's why a documentary is needed and that's what does it the most honor and gives it the most kind of uh, justice rather than a newspaper clipping or something like that God, thank you. I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> so you really got it. Like, that's exactly what we we're trying to do. And, you know, because when you're there and, and people, you see people experiencing it and it, it's so hard. It's like intangible. You can't really describe, yeah. it, you know, but the, that's like exactly what you said. Like you could film it. And if you get that authenticity, the audience will just get that vibe, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, and the, the the lamenting and the wailing, like uh, it's yeah. we're kind of distant from it in society. We don't do it as much, and it's not we're very clinical now. So you know, you the, the funerals happen, and everybody's kind of stoic and, and kind of you know, and it depends on what culture you come from again. But you know, it, it I feel like that those images of those women uh who are who are you know naked and and showing the this this emotion that's incredible it should give you this raw range of emotion like it should make you uncomfortable it should it should it should give you everything and that's i think that's what the act itself with humans when they when they mourn when they grieve when they're shrieking and shouting about death and they're showing conveying the anguish of it that's what it is. And and I mean, as a as a filmmaker, if you can capture that. And it, and what's crazy is I didn't even see the movie. We watched the trailer like last <laughs> night. We, unfortunately, we weren't able to get the movie in our uh, location in Canada. Oh, but yeah. We, yeah, we'll have to figure out how we can watch oh, it later. I, but I'll send you a link. But art actually, I'd love to. Um art FIFA. I'll send you a link for sure. But okay, perfect. Because like even just the trailer, I'm watching yeah. this like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. Well, Art FIFA, you know, the Montreal Festival, they're doing, they're, they're deciding to do an online platform in Canada for their art films. So they invited C20D to be part of it. So starting um, April 1st, it's going to be, be available in Canada. I'm really excited. Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. And we're, yeah. we're definitely going to watch that and share it. Uh, yeah. I mean, this will be a great way to get the word out there too. 
Yeah, it's really true. It's like, it's that, that wailing, like there was this story when the film, when the tragedy happened, it's a famous news clip where um, a journalist caught a mother at JFK hearing the news and falling to the ground on her back wailing. And at the time it was really controversial. Like, do you, was it, did he go too far? Do you, how do you show that intimate moment of someone on the nightly news? I mean, you could Google it. And I chose not to put that in the film because I felt like it, it wasn't really part of my film, but that woman, her statue, her sculpture is in, in Seuss's um, garden, Dark Elegy. She's the woman that's in the trailer. It's like you see a woman lying on her back and she's naked. You see just a pan of her body. And, but yeah, it's like, it's the wailing. Like when my dad just died um, in December, my mother was married to him for 60 years. And, um, you know, he had a really long illness and he was in hospice for the last week of his life. And we were going over there and it was, you know, it was awful. And she didn't want to like, she just really didn't want to confront the fact that he was on his way out. And then we were there every day and then we took a day off and I think he didn't want to pass in front of her because we got a call like at 11 in the morning before, as we were on our way to the hospital that he passed. And she, she wailed like that. She was in her bedroom. She fell on her bed. She, she, you know, I was upstairs with her when she got the call. My kids, everyone were downstairs and it was that primal wail. It was, yeah. and you know, we walked downstairs to the rest of the kids, the grandkids, and you didn't have to say anything. They all just hugged, kissed. Everyone knew what had happened. And like an interesting parallel to that is when I had my first child and I had like very little um, epidural. I just had it kind of naturally. I, I did have an epidural, but they got to me too late. I wailed when my daughter came into life. I had a pile of pain. Like it, like seriously, I remember being out of my head and do, like that last push of that primal scream. Wow. And I think it's so interesting to have that like primal scream on the way in and out, you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. And you have to imagine, well, you have to understand that's probably from just a raw visceral emotion that is, you know, those, those times when your knees are weak and you just fall down and that's just it happens sometimes, but these are those moments that cause that. And it's, it, I, it's something that, you know, understanding that, that emotion that takes place and, and sometimes your body's just out of control. And I would imagine with that woman who fell down um, with the anguish and just, just, just the shock of it all. And, and her body just gave, gave in and said, well, this is, this is what's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's the most, in a way alive we are right yeah. like you know you're just it's primal like you're just you're not in control in a weird way your emotions everything is just very yeah not in your control yeah and it's uh joshua had mentioned uh we had jane edberg on and it's interesting so after her son passed away tragically at a young age she was an artist. She is an artist. So she did things to help her. And I think some in the interview, 
I, there's some moments where I don't even think she realized what she was doing. She just did it where, uh, you know, she painted and she also did something where he got cremated and with the ashes, she one day just decided, uh, you know, I'm going to make art out of this. And she put her face into the ashes and transcribed that to paper uh, and made yeah. art. And, and for her, you know, that was what she needed and it was visceral and it was just intuitive with her. And, and that's something I, I, I find so beautiful that someone can do something that probably is out of the norm and not what happens normally, but just feel the urge to kind of go there because that's what's calling to them. And I think that's a lot of what happens uh, when it comes down to obviously uh, lamenting and anguish and, and shrieking and, and all this that goes on. And it's obviously what uh, I think drove Sousa to create this beautiful art, this piece that's, you know, to, to help her express and that I mean that's what art and music and, and all that is. Yeah, it's so true. Like I actually feel like art is the eighth sense. <laughs> like mm. you kind of do need it to survive. Humans need it. Like what how did we all get through the pandemic? You know, we watched content, we watched art, we this got us through, right? Like how like like that's a great story about that mother again, using her art to get her through, like, you know, art has been around since man has been around. And I love like, you know, exploring that, right? You know, without art, who are we? Like art tells us, it kind of um, takes us out of like our daily life and tells us more of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. And it begs the question, what did your art teach you about who you are? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. My art is always teaching me. I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to my art. <laughs> no, if I'm not, you know, there's times you need to take a break because it's intense. It's like this intense kind of relationship and, and it's hard. Like you're, you have a lot of successes and a lot of rejection and it can be super depressing and you need to just keep going. But, you know, my art is, it's part of me. It's who I am. It's, it's, you know, it's taking me years to tap into that. I mean, it's a great question. Like, what has it taught me about who I am? It's, it's taught me so much. It's enabled me to have this deep understanding of others and to take ego out of my life and as much as possible. You can't totally get rid of ego, but like try to, you know, when you're creating a documentary, you know, where you're just being an artist, it's like, you can't let your ego defeat you. You can't let like rejection or an insult, you know, that's all about your ego getting, you know, getting bent out of shape. And like, if you, and, and it's all connected to being an artist, because you put your work out there and you're creating, hopefully not just, some are creating just for themselves and it helps them or you're creating for others. So everyone who looks at your work is going to have a different reaction to it. And I've learned to like, you can't, you can't take it personally. Like I teach that to my students when I'm teaching them to take critique. It's like you, 
if you start taking things personally, you're not going to create, like, you've got to like listen to the world and listen to like, you know, what's working and what's not, but also you have to, you know, protect your ego and not be egotistic. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It's super interesting to to hear all about that. And, and what I got from that is, well, first of all, you're really good at somehow along the way you found a way to be able to sit with people's stories and their suffering the beauty and the horror of what they've been through and that's a skill set you don't see a lot of and i think that's why we we hide grief a lot and this is you know through the pandemic it you know grief's actually now a topic we're talking about and death is a topic we're actually talking about so people are first learning about this and they've suppressed a lot of what they wanted to do or felt like doing through their grief. They sort of just suppressed it. And then so no one's lamenting. No one's having these experiences. And so when they see it in the park or, or they, they see it outside, they're like, this is weird. You shouldn't be doing that. But really, no, we should all be doing that. But we just don't have the freedom within the culture this time. And, and what you're what I see is what you're doing is you're so good at your act of sitting with suffering. People can then share their truth. And then you can have a film like this to teach people that it's okay like this is should be the norm freedom should be the norm not containment and so you know like i I look at that i'm like wow it's just it's so beautiful that you're able to get there because i that's sort of like there's always ego but my goal like even through this or everything i'm doing with the, the grief dream stuff is to really how can i benefit the world by allowing myself to just sit with people's stories when they tell it because that's something they just don't usually get. It's it's so true. And like the whole, like that also nails like dark elegy. Cause like, you know, she, and part of the film is she wanted to donate the sculptures to Syracuse university or a museum or a private collection or out anywhere, you know, because really that's what happens when people see dark elegy, they're mourning in public and they're loving it. It allows you to openly grieve. You know, you're led into every tragedy in the world. You're led into sit there and ruminate and it, and it's okay. And that, that to me is what dark elegy is yet. Nobody wanted the sculpture garden of 75 naked women. And, you know, and I think it was, you know, we talk about it in the film. Some of it was the nudity and Americans are prudish. And even though there is, you know, naked art from the beginning of time all over yeah, the world. Yeah. Um, but like, and also like, I think it's something visceral. Like, I don't know if anyone, one who was approached was ready for the, the raw visceral, like mourning that this elicits. And I'm hoping with the film that people will take a different point of view because I mean, I, the reaction to the film has been incredible and all I'm trying to do is just keep getting it out there. I'm not making a send on it. I just want people to see it. <laughs> I just want to share it for the same reasons, like with you, with grief dreams or, you know, like it's right. It'll help people grieve. It'll help, it'll help a mother that's, going through this tragedy or any relative or, you know, you know, thank God we haven't had any like mass murders recently, but like, you know, I feel like a film like this can help a mother that's just newly in, in their grief after their child was like violently murdered. And we of course have that every day. 
they don't have to even die by a, a violent murder because just a loss itself will bring out that emotion, yeah. you know? And there's yeah. different emotions, right? Like anger and rage, but you know, like it's, it's part of the, the journey for most of us who, who have a, a death. And so I'm really curious now, like when you look back at like doing this film and then having your father die soon after, I believe it was released or right, right before, like what did, like how do you take grief now when with your your family and also with yourself after doing this project that's a great question and seriously this project helped me deal with my father's grief you know because again like i just spent three years with women who've been through the worst grief imaginable you know just to see them come out the other side and be able to smile and and live and be there for the rest of their families and is beautiful. I mean, with my father's grief, of course, it's like it's it was it hit me so much harder than I thought it would hit me because he was sick for so long. But again, we're like he didn't die of COVID, but we were he was in hospital and rehab for eight months where nobody could see him. So my mother was just going nuts because she couldn't go visit him. And he was, first he broke his hip and his femur and like, you know, she couldn't be there to make sure he was getting the right care. She was so frustrated. It was, it was awful. And when we finally saw him, he was skin and bones. It was, it was just awful. Who knows what led to what? Yeah. It hit me like, I, I, it hit me so much harder than I, I cried through it all. Like I never thought I would, but I also weirdly used my art at that time because we had to have a zoom um, funeral. The kids were all there and we could have like 10 or 11, 10 people in the, in the um, chapel and um, so I, I decided, you know, we were at my parents' house and I made a video, like a kind of a sh- quick documentary. We found all these pictures of him and the grandchildren and the family and and from like when he was, you know, 18 to when he died. And and then all the kids would find pictures. You know, we all went through like my mother's old photo albums and and we and then I just sat there at the kitchen table and I'm edited it together like had my computer with Adobe Premiere on and the kids helped me and then I was like we need songs and what's his favorite songs and the kids and my mother would tell me the songs we found the songs and we created this amazing like 10 minute memorial to him that we played during the zoom service that helped me you know but also everyone loved like and it really like helped the you know it's horrible you have to do the zoom service and we're and the the internet was going in and out like during the service. And, and then I was able to send the link to people afterwards. So yeah, it's interesting. I just thought of that, but yeah, I, I like turned to my art and kind of cried through it, but weirdly at his funeral, I was just like, when I went to get up and speak, I, I couldn't even talk through it. I was crying so hard and, but I think that helped me because now I'm like in a good place. Like I grieved it out. I got it out in that time. And of course I think of him and I cry and I'm sad and it's awful. And the finality of it is just so weird to be like, he's not here. He's not coming back. 
but yeah. Yeah, that's um, well, that's interesting, and I'm glad you used what you needed to use to grieve and to go through that process. I think that's important. You know, rituals are important, and these are all different types of rituals that sometimes it's just in us, and we don't know why. But some of us have different things that we need to do. I remember when my grandmother died? I uh, I did I did say some words. I did speak, and that was something I needed needed to do. But other family members didn't chose not to speak, but they did something else. Like uh, I had cousins who we shared photos of us and grandma and they put together a little, just like you did a little uh, PowerPoint on like a slideshow. But, you know, everybody has that thing that they do. And, and that's why I think the beauty and, and importance of ritual is there. And, and obviously in uh, keening and um, lamenting and, and in that anguishing that, that whale, uh, that's important too for some people. So it, it's, it's, it's just all a part of it. And especially in today's day and age, it, it's how do we, how do we find those rituals and, and what works for each person? Some people don't like funerals and that's okay too. Some people don't like to actually attend them. That doesn't change anything uh, on, on their emotions uh, regarding the individual. That's just what it is. Yeah, it's so true. It's like, how do you, really just how do you get through it how do you survive it like if anything like your podcast my film like i love that we're just trying to help people get through it and i agree like this has been such a horrible time of death i mean 550,000 in the united states it's crazy you know how much how many people are mourning right now yeah and and one thing i think that we found uh while doing the podcast and also the interviews that we've done is when we have conversations about it, when we discuss uh, to other people, we tell our stories, we tell our lost stories, we tell the grief and anguish and, and the pain that goes along with it. And also how to, how do people get over the grief or how did they, their grief change? Sometimes you don't get over it. Sometimes it just changes, but I think that connects us and that helps the process and that, that encourages people. And also it, it, a lot of people think maybe it's, Again, it's fearful. It's fear. Like it's us dying. It's people uh, around us dying. Like that's such a huge fear, and probably one of the you know top fears people have in life is losing your loved ones and also dying yourself. Yeah. Um, but a crazy thing is talking about it. It actually helps alleviate that. It, it's comforting in a lot of ways. And you probably experienced that with the women that you interviewed. In that, and that m probably helped you. Um, I guess prepare and uh, get ready for your father's death very much so they really taught me and they were generous in how in wanting to share and help others because that's what they have that's what they have to give right now you know yeah it's it's so true yeah and it, it does help it does help you get through it i mean you know i think you're touching on too is like we couldn't have i'm jewish a shiva we couldn't we sat at our house with like the six of us and people sent so much food, but we couldn't have people over and, you know, any funeral right now can't have the usual, like, you know, wake or, so that's super hard too, because you don't have that community. And then I found out afterwards I could have done like a zoom Shiva or zoom wakes or what people are doing now, which I didn't even know, but that's what you need. You need that community. You need to talk it through. And yeah, I mean, Going through the hospice experience with my father was incredible. It was 
beautiful. And I think that really helped me resolve like his death too, because we had to decide to take him off, you know, what was all his machines and put him into hospice. And they said, he's not going to last more than a week. And, and we went through the different steps. And on the second, the day before he died, he was in that, in that process where he was completely alive. And he was, we were all like, we had a sneak in the room. They would only let two at a time. And so we were all like up and down and trying to sneak in. And cause he was talking the whole day, but he was in this crazy mind space where he was like saying like, and I guess I read afterwards, this is like one of the steps of grief and he was saying all the stuff. And then my mother was like, she wanted me to film it. And I filmed it. I took my camera out and I was like, I filmed a lot of it. And I was also like, well, maybe this is going to be part of a documentary sometime too. I don't know. But again, like I'll never take advantage of it, but she asked me to, and everyone wanted me to. So I did. Um, but the worst part was like, he, you know, and I have this on films. So I saw it again. And he like, at one point he like, he'd go in and out of clarity. And when he popped into clarity, he was like kind of in this world and then in another world. And he was saying crazy things, he was saying sexual things. He was saying, it was crazy. But he, at one point, like looked at my mother and he's like, he's like, come here, kiss me. And she, <laughs> came and she kissed him and he's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And she didn't want him to die. And we were, uh, we were hysterical. Like we were all just, you know, and that moment kills me. Like I, and I have it on video. Like, I'm glad I videotaped it. It was like, like he, oops, sorry. Shouldn't have cursed. Okay. That's all right. Like he, he realized it, like he wasn't, he had no dementia, you know, he was completely aware and like, he didn't want to die. He was scared to die. And I don't know. It's like, I keep thinking of that moment. Like I try, keep trying to get over that moment. Like we did everything we could. Like then the next day he was completely out of it. And we went and he didn't really wake up, but we played him his favorite songs. And we, you know, he did at the end of the day, like grab my brother's hand and kissed him. Like he did come through. Like he was such a fighter, but it's hard. I don't know. I don't know even know how to work through that. Cause it's like, we're all so scared of death, like death is scary, you know? And then I have another person in my life who's kind of suicidal, but not really, you know, just always talks about wanting to die, like very depressed. And I was like, maybe this is my, I was like, look, if you were on death's bed, you wouldn't be saying that. Like I just sat there with my father who said he, who was, you know, fighting to stay alive, who didn't want to die, you know, and you're sitting here saying sometimes you want to die, like, really listen to yourself, because maybe when you're on death's bed, you don't want to die, you know, like, the reality. So yeah, well, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot, right? And, yeah. you know, I, I look at that, and there's probably, you know, many reasons, you know, people have these fears, but I, I look at your father, and even though he's in so much pain, right, he he wants to live and you, you wonder why, what's, what is it that he, he fears the most? And, you know, if I was in that position, it would be not having you guys around, right? There's that fear of to not have, to see his beautiful wife, to see you and to see those that he loves. What is it going to be? I don't know if someone's spiritual or not, right? And so it, it's that love. You don't want that love to go away. 
you know, I'm afraid of that too. I don't want love to go away. But that's the, the thing. It's like the person who wants to die now, like your friend, they can't see the love. And so what, why would, right? And so why would they fight? Right. And so it's like understanding that his heart was open. And for me, that's such a beautiful moment because he's not dying with anguish or anger. He's dying with love. And that love is sadness and fear. And it's all that, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a moment that will be a part of your life forever. And, and how that changes you and, and how you move through that is just, you know, you'll see over time. And that's the, the crazy thing with our grief journey is we don't know what helps us until we try it. But I've always found, and I said like here on the podcast a lot, the best way for us to work with our grief is to allow our bodies to do what it needs to do. And when we give up our control of how we think we should grieve to how the body needs to grieve, you'll realize that it takes you in a, a beautiful place because I feel the body knows what it needs to do if we give it the time and the space. Like your documentary, right? Like when you're interviewing people, if you give them the space and the time, the beauty comes out. But when you try to force something, you never get the shot you want. And I think the same thing is with grief. Yeah, that's so true. It's really helpful to hear. I really, yeah, it's about the love. Like, you know, he had everyone around him. He wanted to be like, that's where he was really, it was fun for him. Like we were all there. He was like, it was, he was reminiscing. He was, you know, talking about his past life. He was talking about sports with my son, like, you know, talking about careers and you're right. It's the love. And yeah, with the person in my life who threatened suicide and has for 20 years, it's like, it's a, it's a thing. And, and um, we do try to, show that person that we love them and you know it's a whole other whole other episode and i think <laughs> that is good advice though because i do we all that that's the most important thing because when i do have that tough talk and respond with love and i'm always there you know and it's tough right it's you know <laughs> we're going a little off tangents but i think it's tough for people because even when there's love in front of them, you've probably had this moment many times in your life. I know I have in mine. There's lots of love around you, but all you see is your pain and you feel unloved. You know, like how crazy is that, right? You could have, you could be in a sea of love or, you know, like it's like being in a river and think you're dry. You know, like it's just, it, the mind's a funny thing. And, you know, a lot of stuff goes into play with how we perceive what is coming at us. And it's a tough journey. And that's why, like, if we can learn to love ourselves and learn to just learn to be able to sit with love and be able to perceive it, it changes. It changes who we are and our perception of the world. But yeah, it's a, it's a struggle for many people to be able to acknowledge the love that is around them. So hopefully, so like, hopefully that in time will, will come their way and they can see what you're actually providing, right? Like, why you're still friends, right? Because there is that love that's still beaming at them. Reminds me of like a Care Bear, right? Like you're always like, you know, <laughs> the Care Bear stare. You're always giving, you're always giving something. Um, but if someone acknowledges or not, that's that's on them almost. And you just have to continue to give love. And whatever yeah. they decide, that's what they decide. But for me, I, that's that's how I sort of look at even this life, right? Like you, we can't change how people are going to perceive us. All we can do is continue to be in a space of love as we do it. I love that because that's my MO too. Like, it's really all about love. Like, when it comes down to it in life and humans, and like, that's what we want, right? Like, 
it's love being loved. Like someone once said, like filmmakers, why do we do this? We want to be loved. We want our projects to be loved. We want people to love our art, you know, like, I mean, it's weird to get that kind of basic with it, but, but it is, it's like, it's, 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 it's interesting too, that that's like, that's really what we need, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about these grief dreams because a lot of them, just through the research, is about love. It's about feeling love again. Yeah. And allowing people to understand that it's still a part of them. So, yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, we talk afterwards, but it, there's a lot like one would think you'd have more negative dreams after loss of the deceased because of the grief you're going through because dreams represent a waking life. But for the most part, they're predominantly positive. So it, goes against a lot of the research and what you would expect. So there's something else sort of in someone that is trying to help them in some way. And love is the key in that. And I think, you know, that's, there's a reason why it continues on throughout the generations of humans who've experienced these dreams and at a high frequency of people too. So I'm curious after your dad died or if anyone else has died in your life, have you ever had a dream of them? Um, I definitely had dreams of like my beloved dog, Casey, who was like, again, like the love of my life, who I had for 14 years and who died and came to me in dreams. And my dad, I had one dream and it wasn't, it was more of like, I I can't remember all of it, but it was like him, like, it was like a me pounding, trying to get at him. (laughs) Like he was behind a wall, me trying to like, like and I kept hitting a wall trying to get at him and it was like uh, yeah so it wasn't that (laughs) yeah no you you see that actually it's interesting because you do see these barriers with people and the deceased and it's usually the beginning of loss right because you're you're longing for that connection and sometimes it's clear and after they stop trying to get at the person they'll just sit and then they can speak to each other but it's like acknowledging that there is that barrier now and so it's like it's really that that metaphor so hopefully as you move forward i know your your loss is very raw and and still new so hopefully those change to say something a little more positive where you know there may still be a barrier but you can still have that moment together where you can feel love and and speak and and you know and tell them about your new film and stuff oh it'll be amazing (laughs) so uh, i have done some work on pet loss i'm really curious about some of the dreams you've had of your dog so many like we were like walking together afterwards or I mean, it was, she died like two years ago. So I don't remember like all the dreams and I remember I had a lot of dreams. She was the first like intense loss I ever had. You know, I had grandparents die when I was much younger and I don't remember it as well, but like my dog was like my kid, you know, but yeah, she came to me a lot. She would be walking or she'd be lying with me or she'd be, I think she would be playing out, running in a field, like happy. She died in my arms, which was also this amazingly beautiful experience because <laughs> I kind of held her in my arms for like three hours and until her soul left her body. And I felt that, I had this amazing connection with her. Um, I was alone in my house and we didn't realize she was going to die that day. We were about to put her down and she gave me the gift of not having to make that choice. And she died in my arms. It was, and again, like with my father, it was like, it was beautiful. It was spiritual. I think it's really 
a gift to be with someone when they pass and and it just gives you so much closure yeah so I don't know what my pet dreams are, but <laughs> no, it's beautiful, and that's how it's a lot of them are like that. And I was just curious: are, are was she younger in those dreams, or was she like the age that she died at? Oh, totally younger. Oh, younger she right? herself, you know, happy, running, and she's come to me a lot. I just don't remember. Like I, ha- I remember little bits and pieces of my dreams, and then I forget them. <laughs> Hey, that, that's fine. That's why a lot of people will write like these types of dreams down just because they tend to be a little bit more meaningful than some other dreams they have. As the last question that we like to ask people is if you could have a dream tonight of someone um, that has passed or it could be both the people who have, who have died, what would that dream look like to you? Oh, that's so beautiful. I think I would, you know, love a dream with my father and like like you said like the last dream was the barrier and i i want a dream where like he comes to me and he tells me he's okay and like he's at peace you know because i just keep remembering him saying you know he didn't want to die so i just want to know that he's he's okay with it now and he's in a place where he's okay and he's happy that what we're doing with my mother and and taking care of her and continuing our lives. And yeah, I just want to see him in a happy place. I don't know if that's like him at the casino or watching tennis or, you know, I don't know. Like, I just want to have a conversation with him. That would be great. No, I like that. And like the, I can just like see it like in my mind where like said like, cause the last moments you had of him not wanting to, to die in that fear to say, you know, like, oh, the love never went away. It's perfectly safe. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) And so that's amazing. So what would he be wearing? So if he went to the casino, like, did he have like a special lucky shirt that he would wear or something? Yeah. Well, (laughs) oh God, he was, I don't want to get political, but I was not a Trump fan and he was a big Trump fan and, but he was a big jokester. So he always, when I was around, he would wear his Trump hat just to like press my buttons. <laughs> and he actually left me his Trump hat, <laughs> which I think is really funny because I was like, okay, well, this can protect me too if I need to pretend I'm a Trumper. Um, but he <laughs> he uh, he would wear like a, you know, he wore like a typical like, sweatshirt and jeans or like a you know he also had like a really nice button up top and i think he'd just be in his like typical like polo shirt sweats that's what he used to wear hat i don't know if he'd be in his trump hat he'd probably just be in a regular hat he just took the hat out uh, new balance runners (laughs) new balance runners i mean he was a real he was a real he liked to press people's buttons. He was a real kind of troublemaker. But oh, like like most uh, older people. Okay. <laughs> got totally. It. <laughs> but like the Trump hat came out just because he loved the reaction he got. Because I have the younger part of my family is like, you know, diehard liberals, you know. So he loved like, you know, the reaction. <laughs> so, um, Yeah. That's a cute story. I really like that, you know. And just like <laughs> the, the beauty of family, right? We're not always in sync with one another but we can still love each other and that's i think a message that the world needs to hear yeah that you know it doesn't really matter what side you're on but we can have fun with it we can laugh with each other and that your dad was one of those characters that you know he 
he enjoyed it and he enjoyed doing it in front of you. <laughs> I really like that. Totally. No, it was really funny. Like I just remember like he, my mother gave me the hat, like, and I was like wearing it in like her backyard in Florida went after like a couple of days after he passed. And, like I forgot I was wearing it and they were getting like an estimate to get their roof done. And so like these people came over to like give the estimate. I was still in the Trump hat. <laughs> I was like, am I gonna scare these people away? Like I'm sitting here wearing a Trump hat now. And like <laughs> but then I thought my father would be hysterical. He would love that, you know. <laughs> what um what game did he like to play at the casino? Oh, he was a big poker blackjack guy. Oh, nice. They're a big casino guy. He they love to gamble. Mm-hmm. But he also loves sports. He's a big sports fan. So, yeah. wow, this, this is great. I, I love it. I, I love learning more about your relationship with your father. Thank you. You just sort of see the love come through. And I'm, so, like, it's a journey. And, you know, you're going to have your, you know, your grief's going to ebb and flow like, like all of ours. Like, I just recently, I was doing a talk in Grief Dreams and I could feel like just the, the tears come just thinking about doing the presentation and talking about my father. And it's just amazing, like, when it comes and how it's just like allowing ourselves the space to, to acknowledge it. And so I'm I'm really happy that you've made this film to get people to understand and acknowledge their own grief and what most of the time that they're running from rather than sitting with. So where can people find your film? I know this is episode's going to be released uh, after April 1st so we can allow the Canadian audience to also watch this. So where can people find just this film in general? Okay, so it's it's available on Amazon Prime in the United States. It's also available on Apple TV. So I'm not sure if it's available on Canadian Apple TV. If you go to try it there, I don't know if if you'll get that. But the good news is Art FIFA in Montreal, International Films on Art. And I could send you a link to that if you want to put it with the podcast. I don't know if you can is going to be having it on their platform, screening it on their platform um, starting April 1st. So, and they are an amazing film festival based in Montreal, like of the most prestigious art films in the world. And so not just my film, but a, a lot of amazing films on art will be streaming on their platform. Oh, that's exciting. When is it on just in April or when, when's it t- being taken off? <laughs> I think it's going to be, you know? they said at least three to five months, hopefully longer. I guess it depends on like how many people want to see it. So yes, go see it. It's it's fun and yeah. That's great. No, like we'll definitely promote that on all our platforms too when it um with the link. And we'll put the links for everything you just said in the show notes. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on and being open and honest about your career, your journey with filming these women and the story and then also your own loss like to have the courage to open up to about your own loss is a beautiful thing and i'm i'm really happy i got to hear a part of your your own documentary story in a way and i look forward to seeing that film when it comes out yeah yeah absolutely you know well done well done it it to have a project like that and to, to the years that you spent working on it and you know it's done and it's it's uh it's a beautiful piece and i think uh you know i hopefully you know well i know you're gonna think about this and take it with you the rest of your life to be able to have an idea and see it through and to 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 be able to put you know a, a visual to it and audio and, and and to have it all together and to capture something so important 
and I think it pays homage uh, beautifully to Susa and uh, her loss and her grief. And uh, so, yeah, just um, I think it's amazing. And, you know, again, amazing work. And I can't wait for your next projects and uh, what your eyes on. And I bet this experience probably uh, enhanced your eye for what the next project's going to be. And it'll be very interesting. Yeah, my next one's going to be awesome. I'm filming it right now. So I can't wait to share that. And thank you. This has been really, really meaningful and just it's great to just have a conversation and, and learn. And you guys have comforted me a little bit through my grief too, which is amazing. Um, so yeah, thank you for just the conversation and, and for sharing, sharing the, the film with, 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 you know, your listeners. I really appreciate it. Is there a website people can go on for the film? Yeah, it's um, www.seat. 20d.com um the the number is not spelled out so it's c2od.com perfect yeah and obviously we'll uh, put some links for that uh thank you again jill and uh so yeah people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic at griefdreams.ca you can also contribute to the podcast and you can check out some online courses provided by doctor or put together by dr joshua black and Jade Carling Black. So check out those courses. Uh, they're really cool, helpful, and in uh, you know, lots of different topics. Uh, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.